The time is now to open new doors, create new connections, and reveal untapped potential. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business further, to expand your reach and find success in unexpected places. So whether you're looking to discover new markets or find ways to connect with new customers, Export Development Canada can help. Let's get back to global business and see what the world has to offer. We may never get to a stage where we don't have to wear masks on airplanes, but we may return to our old travel patterns and start getting on airplanes when we go on vacation. That is, we may do everything we did before this pandemic started. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Beata Caranzi, chief economist of TD Bank, about the state of the economic recovery and what it means for the outlook of the Canadian economy. While some data, particularly employment numbers and GDP, suggest the recovery is far better than many economists had expected, Kanazi made clear that at the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty on the horizon. We talked about supply chain disruptions, whether they're transitory or related to longer term structural changes, labor shortages, wage growth, and a lot more. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Beata Karansi, thank you so much for joining me today on Down to Business. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. There's so much to talk about. I want to start with the state of the economic recovery. How is it going in your mind? I'd say it's probably going better than we had thought it would have been at this stage. And go back a year, you know, there was a huge debate happening whether to cancel Halloween, right? And here we are. Nobody, that's not in the dialogue. And um, when health outcomes like that are not in the dialogue, it tells you the economy has a stronger chance of recovery. So I would say from, from the perspective of health outcomes, thanks to the vaccine, we've pulled forward all of our growth expectations where we thought we would be mid next year. We hit, we're already hitting many of those markers now with the job market, with GDP, economic output. So uh, a, a good lens, but you know, being mindful, we're still in this pandemic endemic stage. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about, too, because while the pandemic does sort of seem to be ending, I want to say, in parts of Canada, it feels like people are getting called back to the office and other parts it's not. And the same goes for the rest of the world. There are places where COVID is really still raging, so to speak. And I kind of wondered how concerned you are. I know, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but just about the lingering effects of this pandemic that we could see new, deadlier more contagious variants as a permanent feature of life and the economy. Yeah, it, it's a possibility, Gabe. I would say that when you look at a, um, economists or analysts, forecasters, not many people would be putting that into the forecast. If you put that into your expectation on the outlook, you would be stuck in this stop and go economy. And it's just not sustainable for government finances, household finances. Uh, you know, we were able to support significant income during this pandemic, but at the same time, the government had a good starting position in debt to GDP levels, and so much of that has been eroded. We saw this rise in debt that's two times what you would normally see in a recession. So, you know, when we think through where the risks are, that's definitely a risk. But what we're putting as the more likely outcome is that we move into phases where economies and people get used to living with this COVID or however it evolves. And that means we may never get to a stage, we don't know, where there's no masks on airplanes, as an example, but you're still willing to get on an airplane. And so there's this normalization of activity. It may not look like it used to be. 
a good reference for that is, you know, post 9-11, right? We're still taking off our shoes to go through detectors um, to get on a plane. And so there's going to be behavioral adjustments that can linger for a long time. But the economy and people's behavior normalized in the sense of their spending patterns and, and um, employment patterns uh, following the event. That kind of speaks to this uncertainty that seems to be permeating a lot of different parts of the economy. There are these supply chain disruptions where if you look in major ports at North America and elsewhere, there are shortages of containers or the boats are just kind of waiting to unload their cargo. And on top of this, you're seeing commodity prices rise. There's a lot of disagreement right now about whether these are transitory or symptoms of bigger changes that are sweeping the world. Things like deglobalization, China and the U.S.'s economy decoupling, the energy transition away from fossil fuels. Where do you land on these issues? I think given that we've seen these arise suddenly and rapidly, uh, to attribute it to um, a broader structural trend like deglobalization would be a little bit more unusual because those tend not to be like, oh, here's a line in the sand. And by the way, you just crossed it yesterday, right? And all of a sudden the ports are backlogged and you know, there's no more labor. So, you know, these, these things don't happen in that kind of jarring way. They, they tend to have a, a little bit more of a runway. So it does still feel like the catalyst is the pandemic. But there are some really unique elements that could be more structural. And, and one of them is that we've exited this cycle with higher levels of income and wealth. And that is atypical for where we are, given that we were deep in a recession just over a year ago. Can you say that again? We've exited a cycle and we have higher income? Yeah, higher incomes, higher savings levels and higher wealth. Um, and the wealth, of course, is attributed to the movements that we've had in home prices and the stock market. And so if you're an owner on any one of those fronts, you're um, far better off today than not just 2019 pre-crisis. But if you look at the counterfactual world, let's say the pandemic never happened, what we would have been predicting in 2019 for 2021, we are at higher levels today. So it's telling you there's this like shift that happened and, and that tells us there could be some longevity to some of these spending patterns that we're seeing that are creating the supply chain tensions. Um, people spending more in durable goods initially started off because you couldn't spend in services. Restaurants and haircuts were not allowed at the time. Uh, but now that that's available, you still have all this excess savings and higher levels of deposit. So what are you going to do with it? So it, it could end up leading to a longer consumer cycle than we would have traditionally seen when you come out of the depths of a recession like we did. And so that's an unusual factor that's still pandemic related, but could have a longer life cycle than we're thinking. Do you think that there is more disagreement than usual about what's happening in terms of supply chain disruptions and what's causing prices to rise? Because it does seem very stark in the camps that say this is transitory and people who say, no, 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 this is like, you know, the tip of the iceberg. So there's definitely disagreements. And one of the factors related to this is if you look at how analysts would be modeling out, you know, growth and patterns, they tend to not be done on a bottom up basis, meaning you're looking at supply 
and feeding that into a demand cycle it usually goes the other way around. So like top down, what are your income and job drivers and how does that affect demand? So you're not focused on like, hey, what's the traffic at the port level? <laughs> what's, the, what's the production by this particular auto car and their supply chain? So that's rare that you would have models that would be at that disaggregate level. And that's because people assume that the world runs smoothly. Yeah, and that capacity adjusts. So if you're a business and you see your demand thriving, well, then you expand your capacity. And it's, you know, in an unrestrained world where you're not having a huge amount of difficulty sourcing materials. And when you do start to run into these capacity constraints, you get the price increases and, you know, higher prices kind of are the cure to higher prices, right? It adjusts behaviors. So there's definitely disagreements occurring. And then there's like a trifecta of factors happening, right? So you have higher energy prices. A lot of idiosyncratic features happening there, but but there are higher energy prices. You've got the logistics issues that you you mentioned, ports. But even now they're saying, oh, we've solved for the ports, but now we can't solve for finding truckers and everybody else to move it off the ports. And then you've got the labor side. So you have three different things to argue about. <laughs> and each one has its own variability. So it's definitely adding to the uncertainty. And I think that's what creates the nervousness around what we're seeing on the inflation side. Because if you're just trying to solve for one of those, you can kind of map it out and it, it, you know, and come to a point where, oh, okay, the logistics aspects should be solved by around the second, third quarter because, you know, you'll see a labor impulse response and Biden's already working through some logistics port issues and getting them run 24-7, like all of that, right? Um, But now we're really trying to solve for three different tangents and have all the pieces come together. So it does tell you that you got to have quite a bit of humility when you're forecasting this economy, especially with inflation, because this is very atypical. And I dare to say that nobody has a model that can predict all three of these, (laughs) at least to any degree of accuracy. I mean, to be clear, you kind of see some of these disruptions as all being what, what I have heard people call like whiplash from the pandemic, where, you know, people didn't know how to plan for demand because everyone stayed home all of a sudden, or then it was hard to get people back into the workforce. So production bottlenecks occurred. They're all sort of different permutations of the effects of the pandemic. And some people see it as transitory for that reason. And that's the camp that you're in, right? That eventually some of these issues are going to solve themselves and supply and demand will rebalance. Eventually, but, but the timing is really important. So if it takes too long to resolve, uh, higher prices start to get embedded in your expectations of wages. And now you've got like more classic wage push inflation pressures that require central banks to respond to. And then on top of that, the longer the economic cycle goes, the more you move into a period where you're closing that output gap, that there's less slack. And even though the logistics portion may solve getting things into stores, now you've just got a labor force firing on all cylinders and just a lot of income and demand. And that's like, again, another traditional driver of inflationary pressure that gets you back to the fundamentals. So we could be in a stage where right now we have a lot of supply side issues related to the pandemic. And as those solve, it may be occurring right where the pivot point is that we've moved into an economy that is hot, right? It just has a lot of more people back in the workforce and income associated with it. And so it still forces the central banks to respond to what's happening because you can solve the one, but now you have more fundamental drivers that come into play. And I just would point out that I think being, you know, in Canada, we associate a lot with the stories we hear in the U.S. 
the labor market shortages in Canada are not as pronounced as what you're seeing in the U.S. Um, and we've had a very strong response in labor force participation, people coming back into the market, which they have not had in the U.S. And don't ask me why that is <laughs> a natural question. You must have some theory, though, or have heard some kind of theory on why there's a discrepancy between the U.S. and Canada. Well, most people will put out the theory about, you know, the fact that they have lower vaccination rates and there's less positive health outcomes happening there as creating a hesitancy. There is definitely a factor, I believe, related to women in the workforce with school systems being kind of on and off in the U.S., much more than what we're seeing in Canada. That prevents not just mothers, but even it it could be fathers as well from re-entering. So there's some element there. But the U.S. is quite unique to Canada that when they go through a down cycle and they're in their expansion period, they historically hire at a much slower rate than what we see Canada hire. Canada grows through labor. They grow more often through the investment cycle. And then they hire like with a one to two year lag. So the fact that our jobs have come back faster and people have re-entered the market is actually more akin to the patterns that we've seen in Canada in the prior two recessions, the global financial crisis and the one prior to that. Whereas the U.S. is behaving very like the U.S., this really slow labor market cycle. You know, because we get so much U.S. media and narrative, we just kind of associate them all as one and the same. And it doesn't mean there's sh- there aren't shortages and things like accommodations in Canada where people have pivoted to other jobs. It's just not pervasive. We're not seeing it at the level that you're seeing it in the U.S. Yeah, uh, this is a, a good time to shift into this. What is happening with our labor market? Do you see employers raising their wages here in Canada? So what we're seeing in the data, actual like data, so what people's anecdotal experience is going to be different, maybe what you see on the aggregate data level. That's showing that it's actually not rising to any great degree relative to what we've seen in the past. What people tend to look at is like average hourly earnings. However, the average gets skewed by who's getting hired. And what we've seen in Canada is there's been a lot of hiring in higher paying jobs. So finance, professional, healthcare, obviously, education. And that skews up your average, whereas the accommodation food industry has been doing a lot less hiring. And it gives you the sense that when you just read the newspaper and you just see, oh, average hourly wages rising at 3 4%, you think, oh, okay, there's this acceleration. But when you adjust for the composition of jobs, it actually tells you that, no, relative to, you know, if you match up the wages of a professional to a prior professional, they're actually not rising at an astronomical pace like what we're seeing in the U.S. where there's much more pressure. So that's just a point of reference that the data sometimes can lead you astray because you have to understand that it's capturing a little quirk and how it's calculated. So is that maybe another way of saying that inequality is going to be worse than it was a couple years ago? It's pos- like it, it, the sorting out of the job market is an interesting issue because on the one hand, if you are in a lower skilled field, there's a lot of opportunity right now, right? So you you may actually start to have more pricing power than you would have had in, in the past. And that should typically alleviate some of that inequity because you're able to demand more on the wage side as the market continues to get tighter and tighter. Because again, that hiring is skewed to one sector, not the other, but that other sector has been clamped down on and it's just now starting to get you know, some of the capacity constraints are, are easing and tarot being an example. So there's some advantages there. The disadvantage, I think, in what's happening is that inflation's high. 
And when you look at high inflation and who it impacts more, it disproportionately disadvantages lower-income individuals because they don't have a lot of choice in what they're going to buy. They have to buy, you know, need-to-have stuff, not nice-to-have stuff, right? And their saving levels don't, you know, they don't have that cushion. So while they might have more pricing power, it's a good question of whether it actually is going to keep up to the rate of inflation. Because they can end up seeing 3% growth in wages, great, but inflation is rising at over 4%. So your income is actually falling by 1%, right? Like your ability to keep up with purchasing, um, your purchasing power. And so that's, you know, it's possible that that inequality gets worse, even in a tight labor market, which may not seem intuitive. But the fact is that we have these two dynamics that are kind of opposing at the moment. Yeah. And you mentioned before that the central bank has a number of tools at its disposal. Everyone focuses on interest rates. Any ideas what the central banks may do in the next year? I know you also hedged about making predictions in this kind of environment, but I'm just curious what you think is likely on the horizon. Well, our view is that if you take the Bank of Canada, they recently made an announcement that they're no longer going to be doing quantitative easing, meaning additional asset purchases. So that was the first step of them, you know, taking the foot off the pedal. And then the next step is to raise interest rates. And on that front, you know, we were thinking if you go back a few months that maybe we would see one rate hike next year. And now we believe that you're probably looking at three and maybe even four. Uh, and that's because of the persistence that we've seen on the inflation front and these supply chains that, you know, they're all taking a little longer to unlock. And then we have the energy now coming into it, which wasn't there a few months ago as an issue. And then the other factor is the job market. Like the job market in Canada has already recovered jobs to pre-crisis levels, not in the same sectors, but on average. And the, these participation rates in Canada are very high. So we don't have the same situation in the U.S. And it allows the Bank of Canada to start to, again, normalize rates to mitigate some of the risks happening in other sectors of the economy, like housing, right? It's very responsive to low interest rates. You cannot find a person who will say they feel the housing market is balanced right now. <laughs> Prices are way too high and they're rising at double-digit rates on a year-over-year basis and you know, this is obviously eroding affordability, adding to debt levels. So they have to have this risk management lens. They can't just say, oh, we're going to wait for this, you know, utopia of outcomes to happen in jobs and everything else for all the accommodation sector to, to rehire. The time is not on their side. So we're thinking we can see three rate hikes next year, although the market is priced between four and five. So we'll see how it all plays out as we get through the winter to make sure the COVID cases don't kind of derail some of our recovery. Yeah. I mean, just to play that out a minute, the federal government recently announced it was ending CERB, you know, the benefits for people who haven't been able to work as a result of the pandemic. Isn't there a possibility, too, that if the economy starts to sink a little sometime over the next year, that central bankers will be a little bit more maybe cautious about you know, stepping on interest rates and just jacking them up? Well, so the way central banks think through when they start to raise interest rates is, you know, they they have a series of meetings, eight a year, and they're usually scheduled about six weeks apart. So you can sit there and go every, every rate meeting. Or if you start early enough and you're cautious enough, you can give yourself breathers. So, you know, you do a rate hike, you don't go at the next meeting, you wait, you let a bigger gap to happen. So you have a 12-week gap, you can even gap it out more, and you can observe, and you can see what the housing market reaction is, and you can see if you've, you know, overcorrected. It won't happen on the first rate hike. Like, we have a policy rate of, you know, effectively zero, um, and that's usually, you know, at an emergency level. 
So, you know, 25 basis points. If, it, if that's all it takes to undermine the household sector, we have a much bigger problem on our hands, right? So they can certainly, uh, you know, uh, take their foot off the pedal on that front. But when they start to get to, you know, 75 basis points in hikes, I think they're going to definitely, you know, be watching for like, where are the worry signs that you mentioned? Is the confidence in the housing market really deteriorating or is it just normalizing? Because you would expect sales to come down. You would expect the cooling. It's a matter of if you're deviating too far from what you thought would be happening. And likewise for businesses, are they really pulling back on investment or borrowing rate too high relative to their incentive to invest? So there's quite a few things that they would start to pay attention to, but it's not as if at the start of the cycle, these are going to be very pronounced. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to end on a, a bigger picture note, if possible. So talk before about like some of the divisions among economists. Like when you look at the energy transition, some people see opportunity, others see huge downside risks and costs. And the same thing with China's rise. Some people say you're going to see turmoil with the U.S., There's also this issue of remote working and technology and and these sort of structural changes. As an economist, are you optimistic or pessimistic and and why? I think in general, I'm optimistic. However, as an economist, you always have this risk hat that you wear all your life. (laughs) It's just your training. And so um, I think things like climate change, there's huge opportunities there for investment and new technologies. And Canada has a massive advantage because of our oil and gas sector and because of the technology and experiences we have embedded in terms of carbon capture and other factors, right? And sequestration and all different things. So there's there's so much potential there. However, uh, we also have a lot of skin in the game, right? Like we have an economy that is leveraged quite a bit more than others to the energy sector. And so it has to be done right. That's a tough line to navigate because people's jobs are on the line and they're not just jobs. These are jobs that are on average paying more uh, than the national average. So, so there, there's people's incomes, they're good paying jobs and they're supporting quite a few people and families. So my pessimism comes in that like, do we get it right? Because it's a big shift. It requires a lot of foresight, a lot of planning and a lot of investment and Sometimes governments don't tick all the boxes on that front, nor do businesses. And so, you know, that's my angst. But I'm optimistic on the opportunity it presents us and if we can really hone in and tap into it and lean into it. So it's just too early to know which way it's going to go for us. Like I think a lot of energy companies are talking about, you know, making progress in climate change and participating in it. But you know, the, these are long investments that we don't see them materialize in a year or two. We're talking like a decade or more to really be able to look backwards and see the results. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming on the show, Beata. I really appreciate it. Oh, I had a great time talking with you, Gabe. That was Beata Caranzi, Chief Economist of TD Bank. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening and supporting Down to Business. Original music was composed and performed by Bryce Hall, who also produced the show. Yudula Hussein edited the show, and Pamela Heaven provided web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters covering the economy, finance, energy, investing, and the workplace.